Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And they went to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. And there was no one who had strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and was cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, He ran to him and fell down before him. And crying out in a loud voice, said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I abjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a herd, a big, great herd of pigs there feeding on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And so the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came out to see all that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the man who'd been demon-possessed sitting there, the one with the legion, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who'd seen it told them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to leave the country, leave the region. Now, the man who'd been demon-possessed, as Jesus was stepping into the boat, came to him and begged to be near him. But Jesus did not give permission, but said, go home to your friends and tell them what the Lord has done for you, how God has shown his mercy on you. And he departed into the Decapolis, proclaiming all that Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired these words in the writing. We believe that these words not only had power for Mark's day, but they have power today if we will hear them. So we pray, Father, send your Holy Spirit now to open these words to us, perhaps as never before that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Who occupies your life? Who occupies your life? It's interesting, I didn't pick this text because Halloween is around the corner. I chose it long before, and 
I know Halloween is a couple weeks away. It is impossible to drive around Plano uh, and probably most of Texas or maybe even the United States and not know that Halloween is coming. People have decorated their front yards. It's, it's amazing. I mean, I know everything's bigger in Texas, but my word, you really know how to celebrate even Halloween. I can't wait for Christmas. I can't even begin to imagine. I live in Deerfield. I know that that's actually kind of a running joke, isn't it? It's amazing what happens at Christmas. Everything is bigger in Texas. But it's interesting, as much as we are so willing to uh, decorate our front yards with goose, ghosts and ghouls and, and have this Halloween celebration and give you know, sugary snacks out to little ghouls and goblins as they come around, if you actually start talking about evil spirits like we find in this text, people would say, uh, no, thank you. Uh, well, some would. Some, it seems, have an inordinate um, interest in evil spirits, and others don't even want to talk about them. Um, I like um, C.S. Lewis in uh, the Screw Tape Letters when he's introducing it. Uh, he writes this. He says, "There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall into about the devils. One error is to disbelieve in their existence." And the other error is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors, either that we are totally ignoring them or totally enthralled with them. We live in a world where I hope we can all see that this concept of personified evil is not that hard to believe in, to believe that there is a malignant force in this universe that is working to undo us, that is undoing creation, that is railing against God, and on occasion, maybe far too often, seems to take hold of people and communities and nations. I like how William Peter Blatty, who was the author and the producer for The Exorcist film, wrote these words. He's an atheist. He says, as far as God goes, I'm an unbeliever. But when it comes to the devil, well, that's another thing altogether. The devil keeps on advertising. The devil does lots of commercials. But friends, I don't think this text this morning, this at times confusing, maybe even scary text, I don't think it's really about explaining unclean spirits. I don't think that's why Mark includes this in his gospel. I don't think this is why Jesus has this experience that goes over 20 verses. It's, it's not to explain unclean spirits. It's not to give us a full theology of demons and how they work and how we deal with them. I don't think that's really what the text is about. And if we try to make that's what the text is about, that's where we get confused. I think Jesus is doing something different with this text. I think he's using this moment to talk about his territory. Jesus is talking about his territory. He's talking about what is his Territory, it's funny, comes out in this passage again and again. 
I was shocked as I was studying it to see how many times the word territory or country or region comes up in these 20 verses. Five times we hear about a territory or a region. It's very a territorial passage. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Verse 10, and they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Verse 14, and the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And then verse 20, and he, this freed man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which was a region of 10 cities. The concept of territory and region and country comes up again and again in this text. And so it seems that Jesus is dealing with a question of territory. He's dealing with reclaiming his territory. See, verse 1, if you look with me in Mark chapter 5, you can grab your own Bibles or your pew Bibles or your iPhones. Um, verse 5, chapter 5 of Mark's gospel, verse 1, we read that they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, scholars disagree about where exactly the country of the Gerasenes is. But regardless, here's what we do know. It's a pretty pagan region. Jesus isn't going into a Jewish region. This is either a completely pagan region, the country of the Gerasenes, or at least mostly pagan. So this is not exactly the place where a traveling rabbi would feel at home. Jesus is coming into a territory that you could argue is enemy territory. Or if you want to put it another way, this is a territory that used to be part of God's kingdom, but is now under enemy occupation. It's an occupied territory. In verse 2, we immediately, upon Jesus' very presence, get a battle. Verse 2 says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, that's an important word, immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus literally puts his foot on this enemy territory, and a battle ensues. Out of the tombs comes screaming this unclean spirit, demon-possessed man. Jesus' own foot on this land incites evil. It incites a conflict. It incites battle. And I think the battle that ensues is really summed up in verse 8. I think verse 8 is the real center of this passage. Verse 8, just before Jesus asks for the unclean spirit's name, verse 8, Mark writes, For he, that is, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I think this is the heart of the battle. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now this phrase, I think, is pregnant with meaning. Because when we realize that Jesus is speaking to the unclean spirit, the subject of the verse is the man. Come out of the man you unclean spirit. It's the language of territory. You don't belong in the man. You don't belong here. He's not yours. He's mine. And we see that because the word man here, not to get into 
word studies, but the word is anthropos, where we get the word anthropology from, right? The study of humanity, the study of man. Come out of the anthropos, you unclean spirit. It's interesting, the word anthropos, if we're not careful, we can miss just how pregnant it is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the word anthropos is the first word that's used, and this is in the Greek version of the, of the Hebrew Bible, but in the Septuagint, the first word that is used to describe us, describe humanity, anthropos. Genesis 1, 26, and God said, let us make anthropos, let us make man in our own image. And then verse 27 says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The point is that right at the beginning of creation, there is this creature called man. And this creature is God's creature. And this creature is a special creature because this creature will bear God's image. A unique role in creation. That he will, this man and woman, humanity will hold the stamp of God on us in such a way that we will declare to creation there truly is a God. We are here to declare that there is a God. What Jesus therefore says in this battle in the country of the Gerasenes is you have no right to claim this territory. This man, this anthropos does not belong to you. You are trespassing. This is my territory. You see, Jesus, I think, is using this, these 20 verses of Mark 5 to give us a picture of how he's reclaiming his territory. He's giving us a picture of his kingdom. He's giving us a picture of a person's life. A person who can be overrun and be taken captive, be occupied by a foreign oppressor. And then Jesus can come and reclaim his territory. See, Jesus uses this passage to show us three things. I believe it's a teaching moment. It's not just an exorcism. He's teaching with this. And here's the three things we see. Jesus is showing us a wrongly occupied life, a wrongly occupied life. He's showing us the repatriation of that life. And then he's showing us a rightly occupied life. The alliteration almost worked. Wrongly occupied life, the repatriation of that life, and finally a rightly occupied life. So let's look at this together. Jesus in this amazing, shocking, struggling, confusing scene shows us a wrongly occupied life. You see, what we see here in summary is that when a foreign invader, when the enemy comes and takes up residence in our lives, when the enemy comes and occupies our lives, our life deteriorates. He'll lie to you, he'll tell you your life will get better, but in fact we see just the wreckage 
of what happens. He is here to destroy life. Verse 3, the man is living among the tombs. He literally has his address among the dead. Because this is, in fact, a picture of his spiritual condition. Apart from God, he is the walking dead. He is not truly alive. In rebellion from God who gives us life, if we are away from him, we will find ourselves ultimately dead. That was never the intent for God's anthropos, for God's men and women called to bear his image. Life was the gift. Death comes because we have received a foreign invader. Wrongly occupied life, death. Verse four, a horrible image. Verse four, he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And here's the word, no one had the strength to subdue him. Subdue, it literally means tame. No one could tame him. Are human beings meant to be tamed? Animals get tamed. Wild beasts need to be tamed. A human being needing to be tamed? This is a picture of absolute brokenness and corruption. And verse 5 sort of sums it up. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is a picture of a man in absolute torment. Let me just take a side note here to say that if this truly is a picture of a life without God, that we need to learn to have compassion, much more compassion and much more care and heart for the lost. I'm speaking as one who was formerly lost. We need to have compassion to know what it is to have this tormented experience. I mean, not all of us know this. Some of us have been raised in the church. Like my wife, there's some of you who can say, I never knew a day in my life when the Lord was not in my life. And that's a beautiful picture, beautiful picture of God's grace. Someone Someone said to me today that that's a picture of, of being kissed into the kingdom. You know, you just always knew the Lord. But for some of us, I lived half my life as a non-believer. And though I could look good on the outside, the reality was inside I was in torment. I had all kinds of struggle, all kinds of pain. And we need to have compassion for those who are not in the kingdom. We need to care more about these tormented souls. We care far too little for the tormented souls that are in our workplace, that are in our neighborhood, that are in our schools. We care far too little. We need to care more because they are tormented. I know I was there. Jesus is painting a picture of life without God. And you may say, Really, Paul, tormented? Isn't that a bit much? I mean, I know some good, happy atheists. I know some non-believers who seem to be living a pretty good life. And again, it is the process, and I, in my own life, I knew the process of beginning to look to my interior life, not my externals, but my interior life, and say, what is really, when I'm, when I'm alone, when I'm in the dark, when I look to the future, when I look at uncertainty, when I face disease and illness and struggle and challenge, what results? And it was torment. But it was well covered up. 
I like C.S. Lewis, who described his life before conversion. This could have been written by me, but he writes it much more beautifully. This is C.S. Lewis writing about his life before conversion. He says, I was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Jesus shows us a wrongly occupied life. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't just show us that. He then shows us the repatriation of an occupied life. He shows us a redemption. He shows us how he brings this one who is occupied home. Verse 6. And when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. He comes and lays prostrate before Jesus. Jesus hasn't yet said a word. This man who could not be bound or tamed by chains or shackles or anyone else at the mere presence of Jesus falls down in submission. It's a perfect picture of submission. You know this picture. It's what your dog does when you come home and he's eaten something from the garbage. When I walk in the door of my house, I know instantly that he's done something wrong. He is flat on the floor. The tail is not wagging. He has fully indicated that he ate all of the Chick-fil-A on the counter. (laughs) And what follows will be a tormenting experience for that dog. But this man is absolutely submitted to Jesus. He is in total submission. The demons are in total submission to Jesus. In verse 7, he admits that defeat vocally and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He knows who Jesus is. And he goes even further. He says, okay, I know who you are. Swear to your father you won't hurt me. I mean, do you hear that? He, he The demons say to Jesus, swear by your father's name that you won't hurt me. I mean, this is totally, you know, him him tapping out. This is a total act of submission. I'm crying uncle here, you got me. And this is a note we need to just grab here for a second. Because it's impossible for us to look at a passage like this and not have some, not just confusion, but fears arise. We can experience that in our lives. We can say, well, if there really are all these devils and demons out there, as the Bible seems to indicate, then then do I need to worry? And again, as C.S. Lewis said earlier, it's an issue of either completely ignoring them, that's a problem, nor being obsessed by them. Don't take the devil lightly. Do not take the devil lightly. Pray against him, but that's the point. Pray against him. You need not fear. He is a beaten foe. Jesus dealt the final blow to him on the cross. He is not all-powerful. He'd like to lie to you and make you think he is. All we need to do is pray. Speak the name of this one who makes demons fall in submission before him. Speak his name. Speak in his name and watch the devil flee. As James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
my children every night before bed. Pray that prayer from Compline, from night prayers for Anglicans in the prayer book. And one of the most beautiful prayers in there. Visit, we beseech thee, O Lord, this place, and drive from it all snares of the enemy. They pray that every night. And in doing so, that's not, you know, kind of a boogeyman prayer. That's not making them scared. No, that is discipling a child to know that as terrors and fears come your way, what do you do? You talk to Jesus about it. And you say, oh Lord, drive from this place all snares of the enemy. Be discipled. Be at prayer. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So Jesus clearly is in the control seat here. Jesus is clearly powerful, all-powerful. But what follows is confusing. I don't know about you. Does this confuse you? As I was working on this passage, I was so confused by why Jesus begins to, it seems, negotiate with this legion of demons. They start talking about, you know, should we go into the pigs? Can we go into the pigs? And I think, Jesus, why are you even talking to the demon? Why don't, like other places in Scripture, you just say, get out, and he gets out. Why does Jesus have this exchange with him? Why is he dealing with pigs and all of this? It's so confusing. It's confusing if he has all the power. Well, maybe, maybe, Jesus is trying to avoid a violent exorcism that would do harm to this man. I mean, most of the other exorcism moments, it seems, are sort of single demons, maybe a few demons, but not a legion of demons. Verse seven, Jesus says, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And a legion in, a Ro in the Roman army was 6,000 soldiers. 6,000 soldiers, we are legion. Now you might say, is he exaggerating? You know, the devils like to exaggerate a bit. Well, he can't be exaggerating too much because in but a couple of verses when they are cast into the pigs, it's a herd of 2,000 pigs to take on these unclean spirits. This man truly has a legion of demons in him. And is Jesus being the caring, all-knowing, loving son of God that he is saying, I'm not going to cast it all out like that because that might kill the man. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, maybe that's why. I don't know. Maybe Jesus is showing, is using this to teach, using this to say, you know, part of the process of having your life repatriated by God on a regular basis is actually naming the problems, the sins, the brokenness in your life. In some ways, when Jesus says, what is your name? He's trying to identify the problem. In our own lives, it is important as we pray, as we journal, as we lay out our confessions before God every day that we maybe take time to list the things that are getting hold of us. What is getting a hold of you? What is occupying your life? And when you start writing those down, you begin saying them out loud, you take the power away from these unnamed sins and bits of brokenness in your life. You name it. And as you give it a name, suddenly you say, I, this doesn't have as much power over me. I'm able to identify my problem is fill in the blank. And you can pray against that. So maybe Jesus is doing this just to teach us that we need to lay out before 
God what our various challenges are, what is occupying us. But that may be true, I'm not sure, but I think, and I'm going on a limb here, but I think, but I've got a lot of very smart people who are smarter than me, um, much smarter than me, who agree with me. I think that what Jesus is doing here with this exchange with the demon and the pigs is he's showing us how his mission of repatriating us, saving us, redeeming us, how it's accomplished. It's a teaching moment. He wants to remind us of something. See, verses 12 to 13, we read, and they begged him saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the seas and were drowned in the sea. Maybe Jesus is trying to remind us that all that's wrong in us, when he's going to come and redeem us, when he's going to repatriate, when he's going to come into your life and say, you're mine, you're my territory, I'm taking you back. But there's brokenness in us, there's, there's stuff in us, there's stuff that has occupied us that Jesus is reminding us, remember that stuff has to go somewhere. I don't just snap my fingers and it's gone. It has to go somewhere. I'm going to take what's wrong in you and I'm going to put it somewhere. I'm going to take all your uncleanliness and put it elsewhere so that you can be clean. I'm going to take that which is occupying you and put it elsewhere. And he puts it in pigs. And the pigs die. I don't think the demons saw it coming. I think the demons thought, this is going to be okay. We'll still live in the country. But the demons are put to death in the pigs. Partly what Jesus is doing is foreshadowing, I think, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. I think he's showing to us what's going to happen in the end. It's interesting that in Revelation 20, verse 10, that throne of judgment scene, he says this about Satan and his minions. And the devil and all who would deceive them were thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. It's interesting in Revelation 20 that at the end, Jesus tells us that the devil and his minions will be thrown into a lake, again, a lake, but a lake of fire, and they'll be tormented. Those who have tormented others will now be tormented. They'll have the tormentation in the right place. Is tormentation a word? En français? But the point here is the evil, the brokenness has to go somewhere. And as it goes somewhere, a sacrifice needs to be made. It's a strange place. That's why this is a confusing story, that it's a bunch of pigs that goes into, but the pigs are sacrificed for the sake of this man. The man's evil is taken from him and put into pigs who are laid down to sacrifice. And if for some reason you're thinking to yourself, oh, the poor piggies, oh, the poor piggies, how could Jesus do this to Babe and Wilbur? <laughs> I think we're missing the point. You see, the temple sacrificial system believed that that which was, that which was wrong within us had to go somewhere. And that is why the sacrificial system existed so that we could have transferred out of us our sin and brokenness and it could go into an animal and as that animal died, it bore the consequences of my sin and my brokenness. 
And so Jesus here with the demons coming out and going to pigs is teaching us. He's saying, remember, we're in chapter five of Mark's gospel, but chapter 14 and 15 and 16 are coming where Jesus himself is going to take all that is unclean within the world, all that is broken within you, as he reclaims you, his territory, he will take all of the occupying forces, all of the evil, and will take it into himself, and he will drown in a death of blood. And as he does so, as he dies, bearing all that uncleanliness of yours and mine, we we will be repatriated. We will be redeemed. And this all happened. This happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus bore our sins. Peter, who was there that day watching these pigs drown, could then later write these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says of Jesus, he says, he himself, that is, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were lost, but are now found. You were occupied territory, but he has reclaimed you. You were lost, but now again you are his because of his sacrifice. Jesus shows us a wrongly occupied life and he shows us the repatriating of an occupied life. And finally, quickly in closing, he shows us a rightly occupied life. See, the occupation isn't over. It's just rightly occupied. We're rightly occupied by Jesus. Verse 15, there he is sitting there dressed, you know, in his right mind, he looks like an anthropos again. He looks like a man again, not a beast. But verses 18 and 19, I love this. Jesus, he wants to be with Jesus. The, the, the townspeople are kicking him out, Jesus out. He wants to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he's sent on mission. Go and tell everybody about this. And do you know what I love about that? Verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which means the 10 cities, it's a huge region, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You see, what's amazing is now this man is rightly occupied versus being wrongly occupied. What do I mean? Well, when he was wrongly occupied, who was speaking out of him? The unclean spirits. I mean, throughout this passage, this man has been speaking out with the words of unclean spirits. What happens at the end when he's rightly occupied? Who speaks out of him now? Jesus. He's speaking about Jesus. He's taking Jesus' story and speaking into the world. You see, Jesus is preparing this man for Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit will descend and will fill all the believers that we could actually have the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus. We could be an occupied people by Jesus and his spirit. And if you think I'm getting excited, do you hear what an incredible compliment this is to you and to me and to all of humanity, to all anthropos? It's an incredible compliment 
that you are his and that no one has right to dwell in you but God himself. If you ever are going through your life saying, maybe I deserve this occupation. Maybe this is, this is the end. I just, I'm occupied by an by a, by a unclean spirit. I'm oppressed by an unclean spirit. And I don't, you don't even need to be thinking in terms of demons. You just need to say, I'm feeling oppressed by sin and by a wrong kind of life. And you can say, well, I guess that's just it for me. Here again. Jesus says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. No one has rights over you. No one has the right to occupy you. But God himself. That is how amazing, fearfully and wonderfully you've been made. Who occupies your life? He's the problem, friends, I don't know about you, but though we can be repatriated, we can end up back at the tombs again and again. Today, would you hear that you are God's? He owns you as his territory. And if there's an occupying force or presence or sin in your life, he is repatriating you. He is in the process of doing it right here, right now. Pray to him. Oh, Lord Jesus, who calmed the sea storm last week and now calms the raging demons. Lord Jesus, repatriate me again. Bring me home. Claim me again as your own and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come and receive. Come to the table and be filled with the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.